0: Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello. A quick Google search will tell you that any research that involves human or animal experimentation will often raise unique ethical, legal and social issues. Research ethics involving human participants in particular is especially pertinent in the field of dementia research. Research ethics must consider the following objectives. Firstly, that the research must be conducted in a way that protects human participants. Secondly, researchers must ensure that the research serves the interests of individuals, groups and or society as a whole. And thirdly, researchers should continuously examine specific research activities within a project for their ethical soundness, looking at issues such as management of risk, protection of confidentiality and the process of informed consent. I think we can all agree that research ethics is important to protect participants. However, increasingly, ethics panels seem to be straying into judging studies in other ways, a topic which we will discuss further later on. Joining me today to discuss research ethics is our wonderful panel of researchers Yvette Vermeer is a PhD student at UCL in the Division of Psychiatry. Yvette's area of research in dementia is in dementia and surveillance technology, which obviously requires handling sensitive data and the ethical and social issues that come with using technology. James Fletcher, a teaching fellow at King's College London in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. James's work is informed by symbolic interactionist and anti-psychiatrist ideas and focuses on the dynamics of informal dementia care networks in the East Midlands. And Danielle Wilson, a clinical research operational manager at Oxford University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. Danielle is also the vice chair of Health Research Authority Ethics Committee, who apply knowledge of the Mental Capacity Act to review research studies recruiting individuals who lack capacity. Welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Danielle, maybe you could start our discussion by talking to us about what ethics is and when it is and isn't needed.
1: Yep. Yeah, sure. Thank you. No, that was a really good explanation. I'd probably add one other thing, and that is to consider the researchers and the risk and the benefit uh, and that the researchers can actually carry out the project that they've been tasked and assigned to do. Um, So I would say you've already mentioned the HRA, the Health Research Authority, their website is really good um, and they have a decision tool that will help you to decide whether or not your project is classed as research, whether it needs HRA approval and ethics approval Uh, Speaking to your supervisor and your organisation will also give you a really good idea about whether your project is research or not. Uh, And where it isn't, where it might be service evaluation, it might be audit, you will not need HRA and REC approval. But you may need to consider whether you need some kind of logging of your audit or service evaluation uh, via your institution or whether there are guidelines on conducting that audit. If you want to use patient data without consent, uh, maybe you want to assess thousands of records, so actually it's not practical, you would need to be reviewed by a CAG. So that is a confidentiality advisory group. And again, the HRA website is a really good place to look for that kind of guidance, really.
0: Okay, you mentioned at the beginning of that that you also look at the researchers' risk and benefit. Is that to do with the ethics for the researcher not the research?
1: So um, often as you say we um, review studies uh, that might be student studies we have UCL uh, really really close to us at Queen Square so we look at whether the researcher has the training to do the study that they have been tasked with Uh, will they be going to participants homes is there a loan worker policy and do they know what that is are they being asked to assess capacity and take informed consent? And therefore, do they have the, the correct training and experience to do those things? Okay. Avert, um, welcome.
0: Thank you. Uh, What has your experience been of applying for ethics? How did you prepare for the task?
2: Um, well, first I actually want to comment on what just Megan said about protecting the researcher. Mm-hmm. Because that was also something I would like to point out today. Um, I'm glad that that's a big part of it. Um, I do have experience with different kind of um, qualitative data collecting methods. So I got um, ethics approval by the university. And it was very necessary in the case of my previous experience that I know how to how to communicate with people living with dementia. Um, and at some point, people got agitated and they were... Um, being angry with me. Mm. And I think if you had put another PhD student there who had never spoken to a person with dementia, they actually might have gotten frightened or the situation could have gotten out of hand. Um, so yeah, that was something I really wanted to point out that I'm glad that's there. Sorry, what was uh, the question again?
0: (laughs) The the question was, what has your experience been of actually applying for ethics? Is it an arduous task? Yes, it's tedious. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a long time. Um, But having said that, it took
2: me a year, but I really prepared for it well. My supervisor was super supportive of it and overlooking everything. And that's why I think I got the first time I got ethical approval without any remarks.
0: Okay, that's great. And that was uh, university ethics, was it, not through the Health Research Authority? No. Okay. Um, James, welcome. Uh, What has your experience been of applying for ethics, given your research focuses on informal dementia care networks?
3: Um, Well, actually, you highlight the informal aspect there, and that is really important when you come to apply for ethics, because... The world of formal ethics and the world of informal care don't always sit neatly together. And of course the problem with informal situations is that you aren't necessarily going through established organisations, formal structures and all of those safeguards that I think ethics committees like because they introduce um, some extra certainty into your project. There's a lot of inevitable uncertainty uh, in in informal situations you often find people perhaps through word of mouth or through informal situations, you enter into an informal research situation because you go into a person's home, nobody can anticipate what that person's home will be like and so there are a lot of uncertainties there which are quite difficult to sell to an ethics committee and so I did not receive approval the first time, it took a little bit of dialogue.
0: Okay, but was that through University Ethics or through the health research?
3: That was through um, the Health Research Authority's Social Care Research Mm -hmm. Committee, although I'm not sure that it was under the remit of the Health Research Authority when I first applied. I think Mm -hmm. it moved under their remit whilst I was going through the process, so I experienced both sides of that. Mm -hmm. I did first apply to the University Ethics Committee. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, I was quite surprised to hear about Yvette's uh, situation because the... I was at King's College and that University Ethics Committee told me that no University Ethics Committee would sanction research that involved people with dementia as participants because it wouldn't sanction research that fell under the Mental Capacity Act.
0: Right, okay. Um, Do you think, I mean we'll come back to the Mental Capacities Act I think with Danielle there, Uh, but you were able to open a dialogue with the HRA once you would been unsuccessful the first time they were open to having a discussion with you about how to get ethical approval for your research.
3: Yes and certainly it's important to remember when you're going through this tedious and difficult process and it is very protracted I also took a year to go through the ethics Mm. process that they don't want to stop the research it's in no one's interest to prevent research it's simply a process of enhancing research as Mm -hmm. they see it. You may disagree, but they're not trying to ultimately stop research.
0: Yeah. And do you think both of you have mentioned that it took you a year, possibly (laughs) tediously, but in a way, do you think the length of that journey actually did help you think through your project a bit more? And, you know, it may not have been successful for you the first time, but it may actually have highlighted parts of your research that needed thinking about more
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I really thought about the questions I was going to ask, about the information sheet. Um, But then again, even though I thought it really true, in the end, in reality, it went so different. For example, I really was, uh, designing an information sheet that a person living with dementia could sign. But the ethics committee wasn't happy with having crosses to sign. But people with dementia might have difficulties even signing anything. Um, but I really got prepared by it, yeah. Mm,
0: yeah. The, when you say they might not have the capacity to sign, the ethics committee you were going to, were they specialists enough that you could just um, talk, them about that or was it just that they have a blanket response to say well no you they have to sign it do you see what i mean
2: um yes i i was lucky that i did a workshop at ucl Mm. with the ethics committee um so i could ask some questions beforehand and like i said before my supervisor was so experienced that i knew how to fill it in, in in order to get approval yeah
0: And maybe, Danielle, we could come to you now, because in the intro I said you specialise in applying knowledge of the Mental Capacities Act to review research studies that you see, recruiting individuals who lack capacity. Um, Maybe you could talk us through that a bit to help early career researchers who might be starting the... uh...
1: Yeah, sure. So um, when you um, decide what research study you're doing and whether you will have to, and I say that in inverted commas... Um, include uh, patients who might lack capacity, um, you will um, phone up a centralised booking service and they will ask you that question. And that means that that research study will go to a committee that is flagged to assess those kinds of studies. So studies that need assessment under the Mental Capacity Act. So you might be doing a study uh, where you want to include people who have been hit off their bikes in A&E, and we have had the case uh, at Queen's Square, So you need to include this um, proportion of participants because actually um, what you're trying to test will simply not work in patients that that haven't been knocked off their bikes. Uh, Or, as the panel have mentioned, uh, including participants that have uh, mild cognitive impairment and maybe throughout the course of the study they may uh, not be able to to understand, they may not have capacity, or those that don't have capacity at entry into the study. So we will evaluate those studies um, according to the Mental Capacity Act, according to a list of criteria that we have. And our ultimate aim is to only include those participants if the study will be of benefit to them and if it cannot be done in any other uh, participant group. And, um, you know, I like what the panel have said about um, the Ethics Committee not wanting to stop research. Um, We understand that it's a long process and... We hope that the IRAs form can be used to refine the study, the research question, who you are including. Um, And I know the HRA are also making changes to the IRAs form because it is quite repetitive. Uh, But, yeah, we hope that the study will be better by coming to a committee. Uh, And absolutely, we want to make it better and work with you and not stop the research from happening.
0: And I think both, Eva and James, you have... um, applied for ethics through universities and also the Health Research Authority. And I know, James, yeah. you said <clears throat> King's College London sort of put a break on your research in a way. Do you, Is there a big difference between the two?
3: Yes. Um, a little calculatedly, <laughs> I first went to the University Ethics Committee because there seemed to be a bit of a grey area over whether dementia was within their remit or not. Um, and I did that because they are seen, and um, probably rightly so, to be a slightly less tedious process, a less difficult process to pass through. Um, that didn't work out, and so they then sent me to an HRA committee, which again, they're not stopping research, they're just passing you on to a, to a relevant body.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and Yvette, have You you've done both? No. Oh, you haven't. I've only done because I, yeah, I got it the first time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <so. laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> I won the lottery. <laughs> um, so, how much um, importance do ethics panels put on patient and public involvement? Um, maybe Danielle, yeah. you could pick yeah, up this so question. Wait
1: that is an interesting question and we had um, the Director of Policy at our last Ethics Committee and it was something that I spoke about completely unbeknown to me that I'd be asked today um, because we always discuss it and we definitely congratulate researchers that have included it and we often say if we get an information sheet that actually isn't clear to us or uses lots and lots of kind of technical language please show this to someone who you would like to recruit into that study but there's actually, there's no formal kind of recommendations, but the studies that have had uh, patients and public on their steering groups or work hand-in-hand hand with the researchers, they are definitely the studies that we see that have much better information sheets and actually have a much better protocol that means more to that patient population.
0: Okay, so it's not necessarily a requirement that if mm-hmm. you have it, you will get through, or, mm-hmm. you know, it's... not an... But it does yeah. actually inform the... The research more so that then it
1: will potentially get yeah yeah signed absolutely off, so. yeah. patient information sheets that maybe haven't uh, been seen by by anyone else apart from the investigator mm. are less kind of likely to be understood I think by us as a committee which does include lay members uh, and just less less kind of lay and less um, less clear I think
0: mm-hmm. to come back to you James and your uh, informal dementia care. Uh, research. So you did get ethics for that study. Yeah. Um, you obviously approach people, but you said it, sometimes it may go word of mouth, and you'll be introduced to someone along the way. Do you think that there's an element of distrust when you go to people and then produce a ethics sheet and they have to sign? And do you think that they interact with you differently?
3: Um. That is an interesting point. I just wanted to return to that point about the information sheets, Um, because I had a very interesting experience of this, which was the most disheartening moment in my (laughs) ethics journey. Um, I consulted on my information sheets with some older relatives with cognitive impairment, and there was just a flat-out disagreement between what they said was appropriate and what the ethics committee said was appropriate. And in the end... I had to bend to the Ethics Committee because the Ethics Committee sanctioned my work, whereas those people with cognitive impairment do not sanction my work. And there was a point at which that was quite disheartening because I did think... You know, me and my colleagues joked that there was committee world and real world and I had to satisfy committee world.
0: (laughs) Exactly, I had the same experience.
1: Okay, well, we have committee world here. Would you like to come back at that? I would definitely say make a robust argument to the ethics committee, because in the end, um, you know, a group of people that are not your participants uh, cannot, you know, sanction that this is right and, and that is wrong. And I think if you make a strong argument the committee should really take that on board. And I know certainly in Queen's Square we would take that on board. And we have had those conversations before. Oh, should they be using this word? Should they be using that? Well, actually, they have shown it to the most important people who are the participants. Uh, so I think making that argument, you know, I guess you m- might not always get the decision to go, to go the way you want it. But I, I would not ignore that. And At I should committee. say,
3: sorry, I should say that that's the most extreme example in my um, <laughs> yeah. my experience, and there are many other ways in which the committee helped.
0: My yes, study. Yeah. yeah. I just wondered, on your ethics committee, do yeah. you have? Public and patient.
1: Yep. So the committee is made or made up of lay members. Mm-hmm. Um, so we used to have an accountant that would come along and be very interested in kind of the indemnity part of people's studies, uh, and we then have expert members, so researchers, doctors, nurses, who kind of use their clinical judgment to to assess the study. So we have a real mixture of both, and actually we need it to be a certain makeup of lay members and experts for us to be core at. And I think, you know, that's one of the best things of the Ethics Committee, the fact that it isn't just made up of, you know, doctors and nurses. Mm.
0: Yeah. Do you, would you like to answer the trust oh, question? Course,
3: <laughs> returning to that, um, you've also asked me a bit of a question that will not paint the Ethics Committee in the best light. <laughs> um, eventually, I had to yield to them and had to go via formal organisations to contact um, Families with dementia, and that had unfortunate methodological consequences, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no need to go into the complexities of those methodological consequences here, but it, I did have to yield on that, and to me that remains a serious issue because informal care is my major area of research. And it concerns me for the state of that research in general if ethics committees do steer people, for understandable reasons, towards formal avenues of research and formal avenues of recruitment.
0: Yeah, it is a tough balance, I guess, because yeah. you really are trying to protect the participants, but then that can mean that, in a way, you get sterile results, possibly, because...
3: Yeah, completely understandably, yeah. as well. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, um, OK... Maybe we could talk a bit about what the normal process is for an ethics panel
1: review, Danielle? Yeah, sure. So um, we will get um, a really kind of thick pack of five or six studies a couple of weeks before the committee meeting. It's also um, online now, which is great. Uh, Save the environment and my postman's kind of back too. Um, So we will... Two people will review that study. You'll have first reviewer, second reviewer, The first reviewer will give a summary of that research and any points that they think the committee should discuss. And we will look at aims and objectives. Are you including enough participants? Are you including too many to meet those aims and objectives? We will then focus heavily on the process for recruitment, who is going to be approaching those participants and then what um, training has the researcher had in assessing capacity and informed consent. And then we will look at the burden for researchers and for participants as well. Uh, And we will have a discussion of those points. Um, And really, it's the chair's job to um, consolidate all of those points, um, to discuss any that certain people might not be happy with, but others actually are, are very happy with. And we have had that. And then to bring the researchers in and ask them some questions that will just clarify some of the points. And actually, I think if you've come prepared... And you know your protocol, um, which sounds ridiculous, but actually people have many competing projects that they work on. So know your protocol, be able to answer you know, most of the questions. Um, if you are a student, it is advisable to bring your supervisor um, so they can support you with that. Um, and then we will make a decision um, based on everything we've heard for that application after the researcher ha- has left.
0: And uh, at that point, are you able, you go
1: back with... Potential pitfalls or questions, yep. and then they can revise and yeah, come back absolutely. to you? Yeah, absolutely. So we may give a favourable, um, which is what I like to do best. So that means there are no um, substantial um, changes or questions that we have. We've managed to resolve it all at the meeting. Uh, we may give a provisional because we would like you to provide more information on different parts. Or maybe we think you should change things on your patient information sheet that we'd like to see. Or we can kind of reject an application because actually there's just far too much work to do. Um, so the, those are all of the decisions that we that we make.
0: OK. And yeah. um, Yvette, uh, you said uh, a couple of times that you were approved first time. Um, but did you have any other challenges along the way whilst doing it apart from the fact that it took a year? Um, Also what James just said, um, I researched informal
2: caregivers Mm -hmm. and um, that was very difficult. But also people, uh, I included people with mild dementia. Mm -hmm. And if you would have gone to uh, later stages, it would have definitely been a no. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that the university isn't happy about ethics uh, approval for that. So it's already made my research a lot different um, from the early stages. All the difficulties um, besides the information sheet was had to do with um, the privacy because also the privacy of the data was changing at that moment, and none of us just and I guess also the ethics committee knew where we were standing mm-hmm. because I do I collect data in different countries, and that was very difficult for me. Um, I didn't have anything to look at any similar projects, so. It's quite different in the UK compared to the Netherlands and Sweden. Um, in swe- Sweden, I couldn't even get ethics approval because I'm not Swedish.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and in so the ne- yeah, and the Netherlands was sh- so easy. I didn't even need to apply
0: for ethics. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did you <laughs> have to uh, just drop Sweden out of yes, your? Yeah, I did. Well. Unfortunately, yeah. Okay. Do they, they must have uh, an ethics committee? some kind of could you not have worked with them or yes. linked up somehow
2: but um I had to choose um, whether to go for the UK where I'm based or try to get ethical approval in Sweden while I was just there for three months yeah. so that was also an option yeah mm-hmm.
0: as we have Danielle here from um, the health research authority and both of you have said about it's quite difficult if you are going into the informal care setting. Do you have any suggestions on policy that they could implement to help this? Or, I, have, I mean, we, I have a question. Yeah, sure.
1: What is informal care? <laughs> what does that mean? You know, these are the kind of difficulties that we have, and we're not a social care mm. committee, but it's actually understanding those terms. Um, and, you know, I might know what it is from, you know from the top of my head, but I don't actually know what you mean by that yeah. terminology, I guess. Yeah. I guess.
3: Typically, when we um, when we speak of informal care, what we really mean is unpaid care by family, friends, neighbours, that sort of thing. But I guess what matters in terms of um, procedural ethics is it is care that is cut loose from formal systems. So there's no sort of formal structured relationship, and it's not bound to any institution that can act to put the usual safeguards in place. And I think that that is why, as I say understandably, it's difficult, because everything is inevitably more unknown um, you know, and a little bit more dynamic in a sense.
0: Mm. yeah. But you would, you do approve studies where people go into people's mm-hmm. homes yeah. and talk to their families. So, I mean, that would be where you would be taking, the research would be taking place not in an, a formal setting, so it would be in their home. Yeah. So, okay.
3: No, it's, uh, that's certainly possible, and that, mm. I still did that. I still went yeah. into people's homes and conducted research there, away from any professionals.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked earlier about that's actually part of the committee's responses to make sure that you were safe doing that. Did you feel you got that support from the committee or they highlighted that to you?
3: Um, They raised the issue with me Mm. and I submitted within my procedure how I was going to go about eliminating any potential difficulties Mm -hmm. to do with that. That actually mostly came through the university. My university has a loan working policy Mm, and I adhered to that.
0: Okay, great. This has been really great from a personal point of view, because as I explained, I come from a basic biology background, so have no experience of research ethics, but this has been amazingly interesting for me. I think maybe we wrap it up with do you have any advice for people starting off on their journey into research ethics,
1: Daniel Yeah, I would say come and shadow a committee uh, They are all over um England um come and see what we do, go behind the scenes, Then, even better, join a committee. Um, As I say, we're made up of lay members and expert members. We're always looking for new members. Uh, And you get a really good... uh, Well, you read hundreds of IRAS forms, uh, hundreds of research protocols, and you get to discuss things with really interesting people and get to meet really interesting researchers. Okay,
2: excellent i got uh, two tips yep. um, the first one is do a workshop at your university yep. you know, because then you also look at other students and you get the chance to speak to a member of the ethics committee uh, the second thing is which I just heard why I probably got ethics approval is set up a PPI yeah. <laughs> so please do that
0: Yeah. yeah. okay, James?
3: Um, I had a bit more of an idealist point Go <laughs> <laughs> I did think about this I think it strikes me that when I speak to researchers, especially PhD researchers, that ethic procedural ethics, because of the length of the process and um, the length of the documents we produce, becomes a bit of an end in itself sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think many researchers get that feeling that I've got ethical approval, oh thank God. And then all of a sudden you realise, wait that's just the start, now yeah. I do the research. <laughs> and I think there's a danger that ethics gets separated from research and that people shouldn't look at getting approval as the end of the process. You need to be thinking throughout about ethics. So during the research, be thinking about these broad principles of Mm -hmm. right and wrong, participants' well-being and those things. And I worry that the over-proceduralisation of it, in a (laughs) sense, to use a horrible sociological word, um, makes people think of it as two separate brackets.
0: Yeah. I was actually about to say this may be over proceduralizing it more is that once you get ethical approval the committee steps back or do you yeah
1: we get um annual reports every year right okay um and if there's any changes that you would like to make to your protocol Mm -hmm. it does have to go if it's a substantial amendment via the committee Mm -hmm. but you know i completely agree um ethics is everywhere and because we work in research we talk about it a lot uh but actually it's it's everything we do and say and how we act with other people so it's not just oh my goodness I have my ethical approval I can forget about that now yeah it's then carried on you know right to the end of the project and beyond I would say
0: okay well great thank you so much for coming in and talking about research ethics I think possibly the take-home message is they're not trying to stop research so (laughs) work together on this Um, If you would like to know more about applying for um, ethics, have a look at the Health Research Authority website, uh, www.hra.nhs.uk. It has lots of guidance and advice, as Danielle has said. And also visit uh, Dementia Researcher, our own website, as we will be posting a few blogs on ethics over the coming weeks. So, thank you very much. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher, everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.